0: If you would, I'd invite you to take your Bibles and turn with me to Genesis chapter 9. As so we continue in the book of Genesis this morning, we'll be in, uh, in Genesis chapter 9. And uh, we're going to divide up the reading of the chapter this morning into the three sections corresponding to the three points of the sermon. And I'll just give you those, those points for those of you who take notes. So I'll give you those points uh, here at the beginning. Uh, First is the New World Order, verses 1 through 7, the New World Order. Secondly, verses 8 through 17, covenant with Noah. Covenant with Noah. And then, finally, verses 18 through 29, heroes of the faith have feet of clay. Heroes of the faith have feet of clay. So we have the New World Order, the covenant with Noah, and heroes of the faith have feet of clay. Let's, let's begin by looking at the first seven verses of Genesis 9. Moses writes under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, and he says, And God blessed Noah and his sons, and said to them, Be fruitful. And multiply and fill the earth. The fear of you and the terror of you will be on every beast of the earth and on every bird of the sky. With everything that creeps on the ground. And all the fish of the sea into your hand they are given. Every moving thing that is alive shall be food for you. I give all to you as I gave the green plant. Only you shall not eat flesh with its life that is, its blood. Surely I will require your lifeblood. From every beast I will require it. And from every man, from every man's brother, I will require the life of man. Whoever sheds man's blood, by man his blood shall be shed. For in the image of God he made man. As for you, be fruitful and multiply, populate the earth abundantly and multiply in it. And so just to first of all get the setting of where these words uh, which God speaks to Noah are spoken, the the setting is still the same as that uh, which we saw a couple of weeks ago at the end of Chapter 8 setting is that worship service that took place when Noah and his family and the animals departed from the ark. Noah, as we saw at the end of chapter 8, built this altar and offered up burnt offerings to the Lord. The Lord there promised that he would never again destroy the earth by a flood, for the heart of man is evil. From his youth. As we considered two weeks ago, we acknowledged that if the Lord were to bring a flood and wipe out the entire earth because of the extreme wickedness of man, then this would continually require a regular flooding of the earth. And so the Lord promised instead the continuity of the regular rhythms of the earth the seed time, the harvest, cold and heat, summer and winter, day and night. These things would continue, the Lord says. And as they did, God's plan for bringing salvation to the world, God's plan for bringing the promised seed of the woman into the world for the salvation of the human race would be accomplished. And in these first seven verses of Genesis chapter 9, we see God's blessing and instruction given to Noah and his family in regard to life on the earth after the flood. This is, as it were, a new beginning. But, as we will see, this is a new beginning in a fallen world. This is a new world order. This is a new beginning in a world in which men and women are sinners and where the expectation is that men and women will sin. And there are several things to notice here. Uh, For one, we should notice how God blesses Noah and his sons in similar language to the way in which he blessed Adam and Eve back in Genesis 1.28. Back in chapter 1, verse 28, we find this, that God blessed them and God said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it. And here we read in verse 1, God blessed Noah and his sons and said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. And again, down in verse 7, we see, as for you, be fruitful and multiply, populate the earth abundantly and multiply in it. And So this is, again, creation mandate kind of language here because... In a way, the Lord is now starting over with Noah and his family. But even though this new beginning has some similarities with the first beginning, Genesis 1, there are also some differences. Differences due to the fact that by this point, mankind has fallen, and now the created order has been subjected to futility, to use Paul's words from Romans 8. And we see a few... Uh, We see that in a few of the particulars that that follow here. And so in verse 2, we find that the fear and terror of man would be upon every beast of the earth. The birds, the creeping things, the fish of the sea. And so the harmonious nature of creation, as it existed in Genesis 1, has now been undermined by sin. And thus the Lord puts the fear of man into the animals. And then in verse 5, the Lord states that he will require human lifeblood. From every beast, though animals have killed and do kill people, yet the Lord announces that He will require human lifeblood from them. And thus it was in the Mosaic Law that if an animal killed a person, that animal was to be killed, as seen in Exodus twenty-one twenty-eight. And so things are starting over now, but this is a new beginning in a world that is noticeably different, noticeably fallen. And this is also seen in verse 3 with the explicit allowance for the eating of meat. The Lord says, Every moving thing that is alive shall be food for you. I give all to you as I gave the green plant. Now we understand that obviously this was not the way that it was in the beginning. But this is the way things are now. And we should note also that now under the current circumstances, the eating of meat is the gift of God to the human race. The Lord says, I give all to you. Certainly this is no requirement that people must eat meat. It's fine if you want to be a vegetarian. But we also must note here that we need not feel guilty about the eating of meat any more than we would feel guilty about the eating of lettuce and apples because the Lord makes His gift of meat and animal products to mankind on par with with what he had already granted in the use of the green plant. He says, I give all to you as I gave the green plant. And thus Paul warns us in the opening verses of 1 Timothy 4 about those who pay attention to deceitful spirits and the doctrines of demons, who forbid marriage and advocate from abstaining from foods which God created to be gratefully shared in by those who believe and know the truth. And the point is that it should be very far from us to devise a false piety, a piety which forbids the things that God has given to be gratefully received. This kind of thing has been done before, where false pieties have arisen and forbidden those things which God has given to mankind. And so just, just one example, in the late 2nd century, Irenaeus described a heretical group known as the Encratites, And Irenaeus said that they they preached against marriage, setting aside the original creation of God and indirectly blaming God who made them male and female, and some among them also uh, introduced abstinence from animal food, thus proving themselves ungrateful to God who formed all things. And so, again, there should be no false piety in thinking that it's somehow more holy to avoid eating meat, because the Lord gives this gift to mankind on par with what he had already done in the giving of the green plants to mankind. But we should note from verse 4 with the gift of meat for food that there is an accompanying restriction here. He says, only you shall not eat flesh with its life, that is, its blood. Now, certainly the ceremonial law of Moses forbid the consumption of any part of blood as part of the ceremonial law as seen in places like Leviticus 3.17, Leviticus 17, 10-14. But I would incline toward the traditional Jewish interpretation here of Genesis 9.4 and see this prohibition here as something distinct from that which would later come through Moses in uh, the Levitical law. The command of Genesis 9.4, as it is stated here, no more prohibits the consumption of any and all blood per se than it prohibits the consumption of flesh per se. What it does prohibit is the eating of flesh with its blood. It seems to prohibit the eating of meat from an animal which was still alive or which was still raw and not prepared properly. And thus one of the Jewish targums gave the sense of verse 4 this way, but flesh which is torn of the living beast... What time the life is in it, or that torn from a slaughtered animal before all the breath has gone forth, you shall not eat. Elsewhere, the Jewish tradition expressed its interpretation of verse 4 by saying that it forbids the eating of any member of flesh of a creature while it is still alive. And... This violation of the the precept, this kind of ravenously coming upon flesh and eating it before it's been properly prepared or perhaps even while the animal was still alive seems to have been what happened in 1 Samuel 14 Verse 32, when the Israelite army under King Saul had won this great victory over the Philistines and being weary, the people fell upon the spoil. They took sheep, oxen, and calves, slaughtered them upon the ground, and ate the meat with the blood still in it. seems that they were, they were just really hungry, they got the spoil, and they started, started eating ravenously. Now, I realize when it comes to the subject of eating blood that many of you would be content to stop here, but... Just in case you are interested in exploring this issue further, I addressed this issue uh, in a little bit of a different way in a sermon last year on Leviticus chapter 3. And uh, that audio from the sermon is posted on the website. You're welcome to uh, take a listen in case you're interested. So it's a sermon on Leviticus chapter 3. But to return to the overall theme that we're observing here, we have this this new world order, this new order of things, a new beginning in a post-flood world, We've seen how the Lord's blessing of Noah and his family is on the one hand reminiscent to the blessing of Adam and Eve. We've seen some new things, though, about this post-fall condition. We've seen the the terror and the fear of man is now upon the animals. Mankind may now eat animals. And we also see in verses 5 and 6 the great value which the Lord places upon human life. And from every man, from every man's brother, I will require the life of man. Whoever sheds man's blood, by man his blood shall be shed, for in the image of God he made man. This is the Lord's requirement of the death penalty for the sin of murder. Now, though every sin is worthy of eternal condemnation from God, it is not every sin or every crime that is a capital offense here in this earthly realm. But murder is capital offense. When he says, whoever sheds man's blood, by man his blood shall be shed, God is giving a commandment that capital punishment should be enacted in the case of murder. The powers that be not only can, but actually should execute one who is guilty of murder. This commandment is the first clear command in regard to the way that civil government is to function. And this commandment has in no way been superseded or suspended with the coming of greater revelation given in subsequent ages, nor has it been superseded or suspended with the coming of Christ. As shocking as it may be for you to hear it or for me to say it, the words of Christ in the Sermon on the Mount, do not resist an evil person, are not applicable to the civil magistrate in the maintenance of public justice. The civil magistrate is not only to resist the evil person, but to pursue him and to punish him according to his deeds. This is why Paul can speak of the civil magistrate as a minister of God to you for good. But if you do what is evil, be afraid, for it does not bear the sword for nothing, for it is a minister of God, an avenger who brings wrath on the one who practices evil. Romans thirteen four and 5. That's part of the purpose of the civil government, to serve as a minister of God, a minister who does not bear the sword in vain. Why not in vain? Because he can and should use the sword in the execution of public justice. I'll say that I, for one, am glad when the civil magistrate resists evil persons, pursues them, and punishes them rightly. Now, this certainly raises larger questions about the subject of crime and punishment, and that's a larger topic than we can tackle in its fullness today. Suffice it to say, though, that when the Scripture does speak to civil punishment of crimes in such places as it does here for for all of society, or as it does in the Mosaic law with uh, specific laws that were, were given to the Old Testament theocracy, the principle that we find all throughout is that the punishment befits the crime. And we would also do well to remember that while the punishment for crimes can sometimes serve to deter others from committing crimes and sometimes perhaps can serve for the correction of the criminal, those are not always the only ends in view. In other words, deterrence from crime and correction for the offender are not the only ends in view In the case of punishment, also in view, in the punishment of crime, is the issue of justice, the justice of God. If I can borrow the words of J.G. Voss, the true purpose of punishment is justice. It is a manifestation of God's attribute of retributive righteousness by which sin and suffering are inseparably linked. A murderer is executed not merely to warn other people against committing murder, but because it is right that he be executed. The character of God demands it. Murder is not only an awful injury to one's fellow man, but also an insult to God. He who murders his fellow man affronts God by destroying God's image bearer. Now those words are true, and I think that in considering this, we need to acknowledge that not every crime has a specific punishment that is mandated in Scripture, but the crime of murder does. The specific punishment is mandated here in verse 6. And this is not, we should notice, this is not Mosaic civil law. This is, this is given to all humanity. And this is why if we care about following God's will as revealed in Scripture, we should support capital punishment in the case of murder. Those who commit murder have killed one who is made in the image of God without just cause. Therefore, according to God's word, they too should be killed by man. Now, as hard as that may be to hear, that's what the text says. And I know of no biblical reason to suppose that this commandment has passed away. There's a new world order here now. There's a new beginning, which on the one hand is good, but this is a new beginning in a fallen and simple world. Let's look ahead to, to verses eight through seventeen. And then God spoke to Noah and to his sons with him, saying, Now behold, I myself do establish my covenant with you, and with your descendants after you, and with every living creature that is with you, the birds, the cattle and every beast of the earth with you, of all that comes out of the ark, even every beast of the earth, I establish my covenant with you, and all flesh shall never again be cut off by the water of the flood, neither shall there again be a flood to destroy the earth. God said, This is the sign of the covenant which I am making between me and you and every living creature that is with you for all successive generations. I set my bow in the cloud. And it shall be for a sign of the covenant between me and the earth. It shall come about when I bring a cloud over the earth that the bow will be seen in the cloud and I will remember my covenant which is between me and you and every living creature of all flesh. And never again shall the water become a flood to destroy all flesh. When the bow is in the cloud, when I look upon it, to remember the everlasting covenant between God and every living creature of all flesh that is on the earth. And God said to Noah, This is the sign of the covenant which I have established between me and all flesh that is on the earth. Now these verses are, contain God's gracious covenant with Noah. He promises, obviously and clearly, that he will never again send a flood of water to destroy all flesh. Now, he doesn't promise that he will never again destroy the earth. He doesn't promise that there will never be a flood that will destroy a part of the earth or a flood that will cut off some portion of flesh upon the earth. But what he does promise is that he will never again destroy the entire earth with a flood. And this isn't, we should notice this is not simply a covenant that's made with Noah and Noah's family. According to verse 9, God makes this covenant with their descendants, that is, the people who would come after them, people who were not physically present other than being in the loins of their ancestors at that point. That includes us. We're the descendants. Noah, Shem, Ham, and Japheth. That's us. We are the recipients of this covenant. And also, according to verse 10, the Lord makes this covenant with every living creature, birds, cattle, beasts, everything that was on the ark. To all, the Lord makes this promise that he will never again cut off all flesh by the water of the flood. And this, of course, is a gracious promise. God was not constrained to make this promise, but of his grace, he did. And he did so to preserve the human race upon the earth. And again, as the descendants of Noah, this covenant is made with us as well. Never again will the earth be destroyed by a flood. Now, certainly the earth will be destroyed. Second Peter 3.10 tells us that the heavens will pass away with a roar and the elements will be destroyed with intense heat and the earth and its works will be burned up. Destruction is coming, but it's not coming in the form of a global flood. And the Lord also appointed a sign of this covenant, which is the rainbow. And so, verse 13, the Lord says, "...I set my bow in the cloud, and it shall be for a sign of a covenant between me and the earth." Now, obviously in our time, the the rainbow has been wickedly co-opted to serve as a sign of the approval of sin. But we must remember that whatever man may say about it, this is not what the rainbow really means. I'm not suggesting that we should fly rainbow flags, not at all, because that would clearly send the wrong message. But what I am saying is that whatever man may say about the rainbow or whatever perverse cause they may seek to advance by means of it, The rainbow in itself is a good thing. It's a God-given thing. God gave the rainbow to serve as his sign of this gracious covenant. And when we see a rainbow in the sky, we ought to remember the grace of God which he gave to Noah. That though he could destroy us for our sins, though we deserve destruction, nevertheless, God is merciful, he has stayed his hand, he is patient with us. And as we find in 2 Peter 3.15, we must regard the patience of the Lord as salvation. And I would go further. I would say that when we see the rainbow, and think about the rainbow and the covenant here with Noah and the patience of God, we ought to turn our thinking ahead in the biblical timeline to the new covenant in Christ. We ought to turn our thinking to the safety and security that is ours if we are in Christ. We ought to be thinking of the great fact that we now have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. We ought to let the historical facts concerning the covenant with Noah and the rainbow, which is the sign of the covenant, to turn our minds ahead to new covenant realities. And the reason why I say this is because the Lord himself explicitly makes this connection for us In Isaiah chapter 54. And so if you turn with me in your Bibles to Isaiah 54, I think it might be helpful uh, for us to all see this together. Isaiah 54 uh, verses uh, verses 8 through 10. And so uh, this is what the Lord says there in in Isaiah 54 uh, beginning in verse 8. He says, In an outburst of anger I hid my face from you for a moment. But with everlasting loving kindness I will have compassion on you, says the Lord your Redeemer. For this is like the days of Noah to me, when I swore that the waters of Noah would not flood the earth again. So I have sworn that I will not be angry with you, nor will I rebuke you. For the mountains may be removed and the hills may shake, but my loving kindness will not be removed from you, and my covenant of peace will not be shaken, says the Lord who has compassion on you. Now, oddly enough, the context of Isaiah 54 is that it follows immediately after Isaiah 53. Isaiah 53, obviously, is the famous... Uh, most famous of the servant songs of Isaiah, this prophecy of our Lord Jesus Christ, the prophecy of his humiliation, his suffering on the cross for the sins of his people, bearing the judgment of God, the Lord caused the iniquity of us all to fall on him. And Isaiah 53, of course, not only prophesies Christ's death for our sins, but ultimately his ultimate vindication and victory as well, that he will see what he has accomplished by his suffering and he will be satisfied. He will receive from God the Father a portion with the great and will divide the spoil with the strong, as you find in Isaiah 53, verses 11 and 12. And those realities are fulfilled in Christ's resurrection and ascension to the right hand of the Father, and these will culminate on the last day when Christ returns and raises his people from the dead. Isaiah 54 and 55 then contain words which address God's people in light of what the suffering servant has accomplished. The suffering servant has accomplished this for us, has taken our sins upon him, and has come away victorious. And Isaiah 54 and 55 then address God's people in light of that. Isaiah 55, of course, is that gracious invitation. Everyone who thirsts, come to the waters. You who have no money, come, buy, and eat. Come by wine and milk without money and without cost. Why do you spend money on that which is not bread and your wages for what does not satisfy? Listen carefully to me and eat what is good, and delight yourself in abundance. So of course this is this is calling people to Christ, calling people to, to return to the Lord. And Isaiah 54 does the same thing. It contains words spoken to God's people, gracious words given to his people on account of what the servant Jesus Christ has done. Now, obviously, an entire exposition of Isaiah 54 is beyond our purview for today. But if you're there, just glance down to some of the things there in Isaiah 54, things which the Lord says to his people in light of the work of Christ going to the cross and him rising again from the dead for us. Isaiah 54, verse 1, shout for joy, O barren one. Verse 4, fear not, for you will not be put to shame. And do not feel humiliated, for you will not be disgraced. Verse 5, for your husband is your maker. Verse 14, in righteousness you will be established. You will be far from oppression and terror, for it will not come near you. Verse 17, no weapon that is formed against you will prosper, and every tongue that accuses you in judgment you will condemn. This is the heritage of the servants of the Lord, and their vindication is from me, declares the Lord." The Lord's gracious and restoring words spoken to his people here come on account of what Jesus has done. And again, the the point here is that this situation is likened, is compared to what the Lord did in the days of Noah. The situation that arises out of the finished work of the Lord's suffering servant is compared back to this covenant which the Lord made with Noah in Genesis 9. Look again to, to verses 8 through 10. And notice the contrast between the anger of God and judgment and the everlasting loving kindness of the Lord. He says, In an outburst of anger, I hid my face for you for, uh, for a moment. This is like the flood. There was an outburst of anger and the Lord's judgment because of sin. But then what follows? But with everlasting loving kindness I Will have compassion on you, says the Lord your Redeemer. There's judgment, but it's followed by compassion. And then verse 9 For this is like the days of Noah to me, when I swore that the waters of Noah would not flood the earth again, so I have sworn that I will not be angry with you, nor will I rebuke you. In other words, just as the Lord had promised that the waters of the flood would not come over the earth anymore, so now he swears to his people in Christ that he will not be angry with them anymore. And he goes on, verse 10, for the mountains may be removed and the hills may shake, but my loving kindness will not be removed from you and my covenant of peace will not be shaken, says the Lord who has compassion on you. The Lord's covenant of peace with his people, the new covenant in Christ, will not be shaken. Elsewhere, the Lord had described the new covenant, Jeremiah thirty-two forty by saying, I will make an everlasting covenant with them that I will not turn away from them to do them good, and I will put the fear of me in their hearts so that they will not turn away from me. You see the connection here. Just as the covenant with Noah was a a gracious and perpetual covenant, so it is also with the new covenant in Christ. And so there's this, this point of similarity, this point of connection between the two. But there's also a great difference between the two as well. The covenant with Noah is indiscriminately made with all mankind, and it relates merely to temporal and earthly things. This means that there are many people who are the recipients of the covenant with Noah who enjoy the earthly benefit provided by the Noahic covenant in that the whole earth is not flooded again. They enjoy that benefit, but they're also going to be those who enjoy that and yet are condemned forever because of their sin. The covenant with Noah does not take care of the problem of our sins. It provides the means by which Christ will come to take care of the problem of our sins. But being under the Noahic covenant doesn't take care of the problem of our sins, the problem that exists between us and God. And that problem, of course, is that God is holy and perfectly righteous in all of his ways and we are not that we are responsible to the Lord and accountable to the Lord to walk before Him and to keep His ways and to obey Him, we haven't done that. We're sinners. We've seen the effects of sin and that this new world order is being set up by the Lord here in Genesis 9 to deal with the fallen and sinful world. And this is the world that we come into as sinners. This is the world in which we live as sinners. And we sin in countless ways against the Lord. We love and serve created things rather than our creator God, though he's commanded us to love him with all of our heart, soul, mind, and strength, and though he is worthy of that love, we haven't loved him as we ought, nor have we loved our neighbors as ourselves. And these are the first and foremost of God's commands, and if we truly kept those, we'd be keeping all the rest in keeping those. But... In violating those commandments, we violate the other commandments as well. And this is why we're under the judgment of God, and this is why we need to be reconciled to him. All of humanity is included in the covenant with Noah, and therefore all of humanity is safe from a global, worldwide flood, because God has promised that there will never again be such a flood to wipe out all of life on the earth. But ultimately what we need is deliverance from the wrath of God because of our sins. And that deliverance is only found through faith in Christ. It is only found when we enter by faith into covenant with Christ that we can escape that judgment and so that we can receive the blessings that Isaiah describes here in Isaiah 54 when he speaks of the Lord no longer being angry with his people and when he speaks of his loving kindness never being removed from them have to enter into the covenant through faith in Christ. That's the only way to receive these blessings. But for those who receive him, for those who enter into covenant with Christ, these blessings of peace are wonderful and irrevocable. But in order to receive these blessings and benefits, we have to turn away from our sins. We have to turn to Christ in faith. We have to believe that he is the Son of God, that he is that promised suffering servant of Isaiah 53 who suffered in the place of his people, whose punishment brought about peace for his people, that he died as a sacrifice and rose victoriously from the grave on the third day. And this showed that he completely satisfied the debt which he owed. It's through trusting in Christ and turning away from our sins that we enter into and receive the kind of blessings that we find in Isaiah 54. And if you have more questions about what this means, to turn away from your sins and to trust in Jesus, I'd encourage you to talk with a Christian whom you know here. You can talk to me after the service. We would love to tell you more about what it means to trust in Christ and to receive the blessings which the Lord gives to those who come to Him. Now, let's look ahead to the the final verses of the chapter, verses 18-18. Through 29 back in Genesis 9 as we consider this final point that heroes of the faith have feet of clay now the sons of Noah who came out of the ark were Shem and Ham and Japheth and Ham was the father of Canaan these three were the sons of Noah and from these the whole earth was populated then Noah began farming and planted a vineyard he drank of the wine and became drunk and then covered himself inside his tent. Ham, the father of Canaan, saw the nakedness of his father and told his brothers, his two brothers outside. But Shem and Japheth took a garment and laid it upon their shoulders and walked backward and covered the nakedness of their father and their faces were turned away so that they did not see their father's nakedness. When Noah awoke from his wine, He knew what his youngest son had done to him. So he said, Cursed be Canaan, a servant of servants. He shall be to his brothers. He also said, Blessed be the Lord, the God of Shem, and let Canaan be his servant. May God enlarge Japheth, and let him dwell in the tents of Shem, and let Canaan be his servant. Noah lived 350 years after the flood, so all the days of Noah were 950 years, and he died. Now, here in these final verses of the chapter, we see that this new beginning doesn't actually begin too well, practically speaking, for here we see the sad fall of Noah into sin. Obviously, Noah was a sinner from birth, but up to this point, the book of Genesis hasn't told us about any of his particular sins. Up to this point, we've seen Noah as a human hero, as it were, the human hero of Genesis 6 through 9. We've seen that he found favor in the eyes of the Lord, that he was righteous and blameless in his time. We've seen his obedience, how he did just what the Lord commanded in regard to building the ark and making the preparations for the flood. But here, this hero, this righteous man and preacher of righteousness, commits the sin of getting drunk. And in getting drunk, he exposes himself in his tent. Now, the precise details of how this situation unfolded are not entirely 100% clear. We do know that Ham saw his father's nakedness, that he told his two brothers about it, but it seems likely that Canaan, Ham's most likely youngest son, according to the order of birth given in Genesis 10, 6, it seems that, that Canaan was involved somehow here as well because it is Canaan who is explicitly cursed. It's not Ham in general who is cursed, but it's Canaan who is specifically cursed. It may be that Canaan First saw Noah in that condition and that Canaan told Ham. Ham went in to take a look and then Ham told his brothers about it. It may be that more took place than simply unclean looks. Verse 24 makes reference to something that was done to Noah. Was it anything more than simply being seen? We don't know. We can't say. But whatever it was that took place here, whether it was just a look or whether more than a look, it was wicked. And when Noah awakened from his wine and came to his senses, he cursed Canaan. And this is important here to note that it's not all of Ham's descendants who come under the curse, but specifically Canaan, and thus Canaan's descendants as well. It was, as it were, the Canaanites who were cursed. And you see uh, some example of their their servitude in the... Uh, in the servitude which was placed upon the Gibeonites. In the book of Joshua, you remember the, the Gibeonites were inhabitants of the, of the land of Canaan. They were Canaanites, and they knew, hey, if we don't strike a deal with the Israelites, we're going to get wiped out. And so they, they cut a deal with, uh, with Joshua. Joshua was not uh, seeking the Lord's help and uh, blessing in doing that. And so Joshua wrongly enters into a covenant with them and when they find out the deception that had taken place that these are actually Canaanites living in the land that we cut a deal with, they reduce them to servitude. They were believed to be hewers of wood and drawers of water for the Israelites. And so you see some fulfillment of of this curse of servitude in the the case of the, the Gibeonites. But Noah not only pronounces a curse, he also pronounces a blessing. He blesses the Lord whom he acknowledges as the God of Shem. And since the Lord was Shem's God, then Shem himself was certainly blessed. And as we know, it was through the line of Shem that our Lord Jesus Christ was born into this world. Noah also pronounces a blessing on Japheth. He says, May God enlarge Japheth and let him dwell in the tents of Shem. And some have seen those words, let him dwell in the tents of Shem, as being fulfilled in that the gospel has reached the descendants of Japheth, and they dwell together, spiritually speaking, with the people of Shem in trusting the Lord and in walking with him. And so this is an event here that has some some long-term consequences for, uh, for the human race. And I'm sure that more application could be drawn from these final verses of Genesis 9 than what I myself will do this morning. But what I would, again, like to draw your attention to is that Heroes of the faith have feet of clay. That is, all except for one, the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, children, I want you to I want you to think with me for a moment here. Who are your heroes? Who are the people that you look up to? Maybe you read comic books and have a hero in the comic book. Maybe you read a uh, a true story and you find a heroic figure in the true story. I'm like, wow, I want to be... Like that guy. Maybe maybe you're thinking of people who are in real life. Maybe your parents, maybe a teacher, or some other adult. Maybe you look up to, to someone in the Bible as a heroic figure. David, Samson, Abraham, Paul. I know that when I was a kid, uh, Ehud was my favorite Bible character. Right? Judges, Judges chapter three. If you need a refresher, um, I I want you to know that it is fine to look up to people whom you know or. People in the Bible, it is fine to look up to them. It is all right to imitate them to a point. As long as they are following God and imitating Christ, we may imitate them and should, in fact, imitate them. Paul says, be imitators of me just as I also am of Christ. 1 Corinthians 9. But in saying that, I want you to know that every human person other than Jesus himself Is going to fail, as an example, in some way. Every human person other than Jesus is a sinner. And if you know a sinner long enough and well enough, you're going to find out about their sins. Our heroes in the faith have their flaws. Our heroes in the faith have their sins. And that's what I mean when I say that heroes of the faith have feet of clay. And we need to keep in mind an important Difference between the heroes. Sometimes our heroes and those to whom we look up are like Noah. Noah was a godly man, a truly godly man, a man of true faith, a man worthy of our imitation in many ways. But he sinned. But after he sinned, the narrative of Genesis is not explicit, but I do not doubt that he got back up and continued walking with the Lord. This has been his life pattern. We don't know how long after the flood it was that this event took place, but Noah had been walking with God for probably 600 plus years when this happened. He was 601 when he got off of the ark. And so, uh, so Noah had been walking with the Lord for a long time, and I don't doubt, uh, but that Micah chapter seven was fulfilled in him when I fall, I will arise again, for the Lord will be a light to me. I don 't doubt at all that that is what happened to Noah, and this is the way it has been with other heroes of the faith in scripture, and like Abraham, Moses, David, and Peter. They sinned, but they got back up again, and they continued walking with the lord and so young people when you when you look out at Christians, people whom you view as heroic figures, don't be surprised if this happens to someone you know, that they stumble into sin and may God be praised when they get back up and start walking with the Lord once again. But sometimes, sometimes though, our heroes of the faith may fall and not get up again. It may be that someday you'll know a person, a pastor, a teacher, a family member, or a friend who professed faith in Christ And for all you could tell, seemed to be a great example for you to follow. And then all of a sudden, they fall off of the wagon, so to speak. They fall into sin. Time goes by, and they never get up again. They fall on the ground, and they stay on the ground. They deny Jesus and continue to deny Jesus. I want you to know, young people, that kind of thing has happened and does happen. You shouldn't be surprised if it happens to someone you know. All of our heroes have feet of clay, some more than others. Obviously, we want to follow after the heroes who stumble and get up again, because that's going to be us too if we're following Jesus. We're going to stumble, and by God's grace, may we get up again. But don't be surprised when you have a hero and they stumble, and it seems like they never get up. That's the point at which they need to stop being your hero. Remember whatever was true and good that they told you, whatever was true and according to the Scriptures, but do not imitate their lives in the path that they go down if they deny Jesus and continue denying Jesus. Heroes have feet of clay, some more than others. But we should be thankful, though, for what we see here concerning Noah. Not that we should be thankful for his sin. We shouldn't be thankful for his sin, but we should be thankful that when he did sin, it is recorded here for us. Because Noah's sin is recorded here for us, we're reminded of the sinfulness of man, even the sinfulness of the best of men. We're reminded that the best of men are men at best. Even the Lord's people, whom he uses for great purposes in the world, are still sinners. We also learn from this about the grace of God. If God saves and uses the likes of Noah the likes of Abraham, the likes of Moses, David, and Peter, then He can surely save people like you and me as well. He can surely use people like you and me as well. Because I know that all of us here have feet of clay. Because of Christ's life, death, and resurrection, God saves sinners and He forgives their sins And though history may record them, we find that in the blessing of the New Covenant, Jeremiah 31, 34, that the Lord remembers the sins and lawless deeds of his people no more. Obviously, this doesn't mean that God literally has no mental capacity to remember what we've done, but he doesn't remember them in the sense of holding them over our heads. The the sins of our past are done for as far as God is concerned. They are trodden underfoot and cast into the depths of the sea as we find in Micah 7:19. Noah was a great sinner, but the Lord his God was an even greater savior. We can be thankful for that. Please pray with me. Father, we thank you for your word and its truth and how it speaks even hard truth to us. It gives us hard truth about people whom we love and look up to. As great servants of yours, Lord, we pray that we would not follow them into sin, but we pray that we would follow them in repentance, that we would turn away from sin and walk with you, that we would imitate those who imitate our Lord Jesus Christ. Father, we pray that you would fill our hearts with joy, knowing the great blessing of being in covenant with Christ, that indeed it is like the days of Noah, that there's a promise and a perpetual way in which you have bound yourself to be good to an undeserving people. We give praise and we give thanks for that. In Jesus' name, amen.